All right. Um, hey, I want to show you something real quick with the building. Not a lot to report this week uh, in that coming into Thanksgiving, um, they're not ramping up for construction, but starting a week from this coming Monday, construction should begin, and I'll be able to show you things that are happening. But yesterday, I had the staff gather at the building. Um, they, they're basically through with the demolition, other than there was a computer room there that was very sophisticated in how it was built. It had to be up off the floor and insulated and a lot of wiring that had to come into it. Uh, so taking it apart is a little more than just taking a sledgehammer and knocking it down. It has to be kind of pulled apart. So um, we thought that would be done. And what they had done to this point is uh, they've gone through and painted on the floors the dimension of every room, where the doors will be, how big the rooms will be. So I had the staff meet me there yesterday just to look it over and to make sure uh, that it's going to flow like we're hoping, that it's going to work the way that we feel that it will. The time... God bless you. <laughs> and God bless me because I almost died right up here, right now. Uh, just to make sure that it's going to work the way that we were hoping that it was going to work. So the staff met us there and we had a chance just to, to you know, look around the building and then we just prayed together. So I'll show you real quick. This is just a quick video of what that looked like yesterday. And you can see um, the roof is a lot higher than what we were uh, even thinking it was going to be. That's that computer room that still has to be taken down. They're close to it, but there's just a little more to it, um, you know, than what we thought. And then the staff's just overlooking the different rooms, obviously blueprints and things like that. And um, you can see the paint on the ground behind it that has the dimension of where the rooms are. And uh, that's some, you know, children's pastors there and Daniel and Holly over ministries and um, yeah, we even had the kids there giving them a chance to see what was going on. Look at that guy. Uh, and it was just a fun time that we had and everybody was in their department and, and kind of looking around at what was what. So um, it'll be the last weekend without being able to show you construction going on. We're super excited about that. If you haven't had a chance to get there, you might want to take advantage of it and see the building in the different uh, aspects once the construction starts. Folks, it is, you know, I don't want to give the date because just too many things can happen. And once we land on a date, if I have to change it, uh, I just don't want to discourage you in any way. But very soon, we're going to be meeting in our new building, man, and enjoying this, the prospect of that. So can't wait. Um, you know, how, how wonderful that's going to be. So, um, okay, let's jump into the message. This is the last message in the series called The Unexpected Words of Jesus. Believe it or not, next weekend we'll start the Christmas series. I can't believe I'm saying that right now. And a month from now we'll be preparing for Christmas, believe it or not. So, ready or not, here it comes. This has been a fun series in just um, taking different statements of Jesus. When I say unexpected... I don't mean like, I can't believe he said that. It's more along the lines of just, wow, that, that's incredible. It, it's kind of, you know, the gospel is a paradoxical gospel. The first will be last, and the greatest will be the least. And Jesus taught so many things that are, they're just counter to the culture of the day. We live with people who feel like if you're, if you're going to be first, you have to step on everybody to be first. Uh, and Jesus teaches a completely different philosophy. If you want to save your life, lose your life. 
And if you try to save it, you're going to end up losing it. I mean, it's just a, it's a very, uh, just a, a counter to the culture type of a gospel. So when we talk about the unexpected words of Jesus, we're not talking about words that are like, I can't believe he said that. It's more along the lines of, wow, look at the depth of that or the beauty of that. And so as we wind up this series, I'm going to use one of the ones that has had the most impact in my life. And I pray when we're said and done with everything that it has a tremendous impact in your life. My favorite gospel of the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, is John. And if you are, I'll just throw this out to you, maybe you're just, you're new to faith. Or maybe you're trying to renew your faith. Or maybe you're just at a place of asking the Lord, where's a good place for me to start in getting into the word and to reading? I always tell people, the gospel of John is a great place to begin. I think his explanation of who Jesus is and how Jesus interacts in the world think that John was really concise in what he wrote. By the way, this John is the same John who describes himself as the one that Jesus loved. And why I think that's important, we're going to talk about the unexpected words of Jesus being that he loves us, that he calls us friends. And I think that the two things connect in this way, that when you know God loves you, the way you write about God, the way you talk about God, the way you pray to God, everything is changed when you know God loves you. And when you struggle with that, like in your head you know, but in your heart you don't experience it. And one more time, I'm going to say it to you, get this. The distance between your head and your heart is way more than 12 or 13 or 14 inches. From here to here can take 50 years. From here to here can take a day-to-day struggle that a lot of people have trouble overcoming. But here's the payoff. When you can get it from your head to your heart, where you don't just know it's true, but you're experiencing his love. When you don't just know he loves you, but you're experiencing his love, it changes everything. You go from death to life. You go from heaviness to joy. Jesus said, I speak these things so that my joy may remain in you and your joy may be full. Wherever you find his love, you find his joy. They're interconnected with each other. God wants you to be joyful. God wants you to be full of life. God doesn't want you to be heavy. He doesn't want you to be doubting. He doesn't want you to be in a place where you don't know that he approves of your life. And his approval, his love, his joy, it's everything. So the unexpected words of Jesus are in John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 15. Christ is talking to the disciples, but if you know this particular part of the Bible, it's actually called the priestly prayer. And Jesus is praying this over all of us in the future. So this is how Jesus feels about us today, not just then, 2,000 years ago, but this is how God feels about you today. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. I love this sentence. Instead, I have called you I've called you friends, a friend of God. Think about that. Friends with God. A friend of God. God doesn't want us to relate to him only in the fact that he's the creator of the universe or that he's the majesty, he's the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. He wants us to know that he's personal. He's the creator of all and he's the one that intimately pursues friendship with you. God wants to be your friend. He wants you to be his friend. We never think of him that way. When Jesus was asked the simple truth, teach us to pray, he begins with these words, our father. God wants to be your father. He is your father, and he wants to be your friend. So I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. By the way, let me just say this real quickly. 
Jesus made this statement that's really profound. He said, I don't do anything and I don't say anything unless I've heard or seen the Father doing it. Jesus isn't just speaking fond wishes or good ideas. He is speaking what he heard God say. God said to Jesus, they are my friends. They are my children. And Jesus is communicating God's heart here on the earth. God wants to be your friend. Your friend. Now why when I say that, do I get like six or seven people who are like, yes, and other people are like, oh, I don't know if that's really true or not. You know why? Because you know it here and it's hard to experience it here. How do we move it from here to here? I'll be honest with you. This message, when I wrote it, I know what the Lord did for me uh, in getting it from my head to my heart and how it's changed everything, but I, I, I feel super inadequate in trying to teach this message because there's nothing of human, I, I can't say anything that's going to move it from your head to your, the Holy Spirit's going to have to do this. And so I would just, can we just stop? I just feel like I'm, I didn't do it last service and I wish that I would have. Will you do something weird and put your hand on your heart? I pledge you, no, let's, let's do this. Okay, let's just keep your hand there, right? Keep your heart open, listen to my prayer. So Father, I want you to open my heart. The truth is, I don't know how to do that, God. I don't know how to get the things that I know are true, in theory, into my heart so that I practice them in a living way. And this message today that you love us and that you call us friends, it's true because you said it's true, but God, until it gets in our heart and we experience it, it doesn't change anything. In fact, folks, listen to this. When you know that God calls you friends, but you don't feel like you're a friend of God, it's frustrating. When you pray and you don't really believe that you're a friend of God, then you pray with a list instead of a relationship. And I just ask that the Holy Spirit today would move this to become real to every one of us so that we recognize that God really does love us he really does favor us. He really did choose us. He doesn't love you because you got cleaned up and you came to church and you're on your best behavior. God picked you when you were at your worst moment. And nothing's ever changed his mind about you. Father, I pray that you would help me teach this in an almost out of balance way so that it's almost striking that could God really love me like that? Yes! God, help us really to be able to come to that place where we experience your love and then we can trust that you love us and that we're your friends. Thank you for your help, Lord. Let the anointing break every yoke that stands in the way of friendship with God. Every yoke that stands in the way of friendship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. So let me say this to you. I'm a recovering legalist. Maybe I should say it this way. My name is John and I'm a legalist. <laughs> So when I say that, I don't think that people quite understand what I mean by that. I think when we think of a legalist, we think of someone who's like, yes and no, black and white. And that's not what I mean by this. I think that a legalist is a person who knows in their head that God loves them, but they can't experience it in their heart. So they replace uh, the relationship with a list. And they replace the warmth and the affection with an idea of hope and future. And we're not really experiencing today what God wants. I wrote down in my notes, and I'm not sure how applicable they are to you, but I wrote in my notes when I was writing the message, the three things that I knew kind of made me a legalist. One, I'm firstborn. 
Any other firstborns in the room? So let me just check real quick. Firstborns, uh, yes or no, the reason that the other people in this room don't have to be responsible is because we're here today. <laughs> and like if you're not a firstborn and you're like, well, I don't worry about those kind of things, it's because we do. We're here to take care of you. Firstborns are sort of wired for performance. Firstborns are wired to make sure that, hey, this is black and this is white, this is true, this is false, this is right, this is wrong, and I'm going to play the police to help everybody understand. And so you kind of are, I've asked Chris about this because Chris is the youngest of five and I'm the oldest of three. And it really is a good match, but man, do we think different. Any other couple in this room think different than your spouse? Yeah. Chris has always felt like she's God's favorite. She has never, ever, one day of her life struggled with approval. And so I have asked her, because I do, I struggle with that. Not that I don't feel like God loves me. In theory, I know that he loves me. Jesus is the proof that he loves me. But often I find myself trying to work to make sure that God loves me. That he has a reason to love me. Because sometimes I'm not sure that beyond what I do for him, there really is a reason. And that's messed up thinking. And Chris never struggles with those things. When she wakes up in the morning, she feels like God likes me. And when she goes through her days and trips over stairs, God likes me. And when she lays down at nighttime, God really likes me. And I asked her this week for the 15th million time, why do you feel that way? What, ha what were you taught that put that into your head? And she said, nothing. I've always felt that way. So we discussed the difference between nurture and nature. And I think the reason I wrote Firstborn, I think some of it is I'm hardwired to be a performer. And I don't think performing is wrong. I don't think achieving is wrong unless you use those things to be worthy to God or to other people. And then it gets in the way. She doesn't struggle with that. So there's this automatic nature thing that she already feels God's love and I struggle with that. I don't know that that's right or wrong, it just is what it is, but it has to be put in the proper context so that I can experience God's love and find his approval. The second reason that I struggle with this is that I was raised a Catholic. I think we have the second largest Catholic church in all of the area. And even though it's not Our Lady of Perpetual Sorrows, there are a lot of recovering Catholics in this room. Raise your hand real quick, let me show you. Hold them up real quick. About a third of our church. In the last service, it was about two-thirds of our church. I'm not bashing Catholicism in any way, shape, or form. Let me tell you my experience. I grew up, I didn't know Jesus personally, but I knew about Jesus from my youngest days. If you ask me who the Father is, who the Son is, who the Holy Spirit is, I could have told you. I had my first communion. I was an altar boy. All the experiences that you read about in the paper of little boys that were abused by priests, that was not my experience. We had a great priest. His name was Father Frudenstein. <laughs> he would come to our house and smoke. Drink scotch like it was going out of style, man. And talk about Jesus. And it was awesome. I never saw anything like that. <laughs> Father Frudenstein. 
My experience and what you read about in the paper were two different things. The problem was I knew about God and I didn't know God. And it's so easy. That is such a deceptive place because you think because you know about it that you know it and the difference between the two is everything. In my experience with Catholicism, again, I'm not bashing on it, Millions of people today are in the kingdom because of the Catholic Church. So I'm not bashing it, but just listen to my experience. It's my experience. My experience was, I can remember being in catechism classes and things that were said to me along this line, be good so you can go to heaven. Not know Jesus, but be good. So there was this guilt associated with right and wrong. Be good so that God will like you. Be good so that when you die, you can go to heaven. Even the prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, pray the Lord my... I was scared of that prayer when I was five and six. I don't want to die. And then the third thing is that when I did become a believer, I actually gave my heart to the Lord and had a relationship with Jesus it was through a Pentecostal denomination and a Bible college that I went to that was very legalistic. Now, there was a lot of good with it, but there was a lot of bad with it, and they substituted guilt for works. So it was a lot about how hard you work for God, what you achieve for God. God is blessed by how much you can get done. So you take those three things, nature, then the nurture, and now the teaching, and I became a legalist. The only thing is, I didn't know I was a legalist, but if you'd have heard me teach 30 years ago, you would have heard it. I taught the law, and I put people under the law. And I thought I was doing the right thing by driving them and telling them, you've got to get rid of sin, you've got to deal with all the wrong stuff. Wrong, wrong, wrong. In fact, the denomination that I was a part of every weekend, they talked a lot about the rapture, and they taught this. If you're not right, you're going to get left. So every week, you had to get right. It didn't matter if you were right, you had to get right again. They did a lot of altar calls to keep people from getting left behind. And it was just so fear-based for so long. That guy comes then into the kingdom. And man, my head was messed up. And I taught a lot of legalism not knowing it. Here was the probably biggest litmus test, the way that you could really identify whether or not I was a legalist. If you said to me, do you love Jesus? I would have said yes. But if you'd asked me this question, are you enjoying your relationship with him? I didn't enjoy my relationship. I found myself always trying to work harder, read more, pray more, give more, go more, 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 more. God was always pleased in my head with the more that I did. And if I didn't do anything, I always felt like, yeah, he loves me, but he's probably not very happy with me. It's messed up. Here's what changed it. Chris and I had gone through three churches in a row as youth pastors where the church had a lot of political infighting and the pastor got fired. And when you're on a staff and that happens to the church, it doesn't matter if it was because of the pastor. If you're on that pastor's staff, you're fired too. And so for three churches in a row, we would build our ministry as youth pastors and God would bless it and it would be doing good. And then all of a sudden, the pastor would get in trouble and out the door, everybody would have to go. 
And that happened three times in a row. And I finally told the Lord, I don't want to keep doing this. It's hard on my family. It's hard on these kids that we're trying to minister to. And this isn't the way to live life. So I actually said to the Lord, if you can't show me how this is sustainable, I think I need to go find something else to do with my life. We were in Lexington, Kentucky. And I got a call from a pastor in northern Colorado who was looking for a youth pastor. And he invited me that weekend to come to the church. They called it trying out. And I was coming here on vacation. Chris and I were bringing the kids back because our family lives here. And I said to the pastor, listen, I don't want to come and try out. I've been through three churches that were messed up and I'm not sure what's supposed to happen. But how about this? Since I'm paying to come to Denver, let me just come and visit your church and see whether or not I'm supposed to be there. Well, the pastor was like, you're paying for it. You can do whatever you want to do. So to Denver we come. We leave the kids with her mom and dad that weekend. And Chris and I drove up to Loveland. You know, right in between Loveland, Fort Collins. And uh, we go to this really large church. It was amazing. Pull inside of it. And the worship starts. I had never to that point experienced worship where I could feel the presence of God moving. Visibly moving. Man, it hit my heart so, so hard. I wept in that church. I just wept. I didn't know anybody. I was embarrassed for what was going on inside of me. <laughs> and everybody else was kind of like swaying. And there were a couple of crazy people dancing. And I was as rigid like this where I just like, you can't do that in church. God's going to be mad. <laughs> and this guy, Bob, you, you remember this. This is when I, when I met Bob Pollock all those years ago. This guy who was really into um, to Israel, he was, he, he was a, a messianic believer, but he still dressed like he was Jewish, you know, like an observant Jew. He had this really long beard, and he had on this little kippah on his head, a yarmulke, and he had on like a, a prayer shawl, and he walked up to me, out of all the people, thousands some odd people in this room, he walks up to me, puts his arm around me, and goes, brother, you just need to loosen up. I'm like, get away from me, you weirdo, you know. Um, <laughs> the Lord was just dealing with my heart. So the pastor in the service has a place where uh, he, it was just kind of spontaneous, and he asked for people who needed prayer for healing, and he asked people to raise their hand. And so there was a lady in front of me uh, who raised her hand, and he just said to the people in the church, if you see somebody with their hand up, why don't you step out and go pray for them? And so I was right on the end of the row, and this lady, like two rows in front of me, so I thought, I'm going I'm to go pray for her. That's how moved I was. I don't even go to this church, but I'm going to go pray for this lady. So I stepped out, and man, as I was praying, I was just we. I was just so, I was, it was like I had not had life in so long that it was like a fire hose, trying to drink from a fire hose. It just was all in, I lost my place. So when he got done praying and he said amen, I needed to get back to my seat. And instead of turning around and walking back, I just kind of walked backwards like this. I was just so moved by what was going on. And I stepped into the row, and Chris is right here next to me, and I put my arm around her, and I just said, oh, I want to come to this place. And then I looked at her, and it wasn't Chris. It was a... <laughs> and the worst thing was, Chris was in the row behind and didn't bother to tell me. She let the whole thing play out and was just laughing. She thought that was so funny. 
It was, she goes, it was. Yes, it was. It was quite funny. So we get done with the service, and the pastor had us come back to his office, and he was going to take us out to lunch. And before, like, any interview took place, I just said, please let us come here. I didn't say, I can get this job done for you. I didn't hand him a resume. I didn't say, listen, I can do. I just said, we need to please, please let us come here to this church. We need to be in this atmosphere. <laughs> I had no idea what was about to happen for me. Steph, it was, <laughs> it was about to get radical. All of my friends, we came out of the Assemblies of God, for those who might know what that is, AG. All of my friends told me, it was a non-denominational church, and they told me, don't do it. That's one step away from hell. Do not go to a non-denominational church. You'll be backslidden before you know it. Legalists are great judges without knowing anything about everything. But I knew, I knew God was there, and I knew I had to go. And so we went, and just right after we got there, the twins were born, life was moving so fast, and they had a men's retreat. And a men's retreat there was a huge thing. It would be 800, 900 men who would go up to Estes Park for the weekend. And I had never experienced something like that. And these guys, man, look, it's one thing when a church worships. It's one thing when you see teens worship. It's one thing when women worship. What's, what's unusual is to find 900 men who are totally sold out and passionate for God. There's a power in worship that the church knows little about today because men don't know their place inside the kingdom. And I had never seen it before either. And I was, I mean, it was just, and the guy teaching, his name was Malcolm Smith. He's probably the foremost teacher on grace that's out there today. And he began to teach things about God's love and God's favor, God's approval, and God's smile. I had never even heard them before. The first way that I received the message was with great joy. But this was what's funny. When you're a legalist, it starts out that way, but then you begin to judge the word. Wait a minute. If I do that, I'm going to end up doing this. And you're not supposed to be that free. People that are that free, they're not really trying hard. And I got this, just this funky, Jesus said this about the leaven of the Pharisees. A little bit of that messed up thinking messes up the whole pot of goodness. So I was at this retreat and God was moving in my heart and I had been asking him, set me free from this legalism and put my feet back in a good place and God, restore joy to me. I don't have joy. I've got all the stuff down. I've got a lifestyle, but I don't have life. Did you just hear what I said? And it's easy. Can I come down there? With a... So I know I'm too short to stand down here so that you can see me halfway back, but let me get closer to you. So the problem with lifestyle is that when you have life, it produces a lifestyle. But you can have a lifestyle and not have life. And churches today are filled with people who have a lifestyle. They sing the songs and they read their Bible and they write their checks and they clap when they're supposed to and they sit when they're supposed to. Some places kneel when they're supposed to, but they don't have any life. And Jesus said, I speak these things to you so that your joy may be full and it may stay with you. And I had all the lifestyle, but I didn't have the life. And I've been asking God, 
give me the life. So now I'm challenged suddenly with this person who's teaching this message on grace and mercy and God's love and his approval. And I had this collision course, this legalist brain and this heart that needed life crashed together. And the guy was teaching and teaching and it was so good. Part of me was like, yes. And then part of me was afraid of it because... It was so bad that after he got done with the first session, he began the second part. I got up. I was so angry. A mark of a legalist is that they're easily offended and angry. I got up. I went to my room. I didn't even pack my stuff. I just bundled it in my arms. I walked out to my little Civic. I threw it in the back seat. I jumped in the car so mad, so angry, thinking, I can't do this. It's going to take me. It has to be about works. It has to be about trying. It has to be about what we're accomplishing for God. And this guy's preaching this message that it's not about any of those things. It's just about God. Being loved and loving. Being known and knowing. And mine was about, yeah, that's true, but it's also about how much stuff you can get done. And how much God loves us because of the stuff we get done. And somehow it all just got jumbled in my head and I was so mad. I threw it in my car and I was thinking, I'm going to resign. I'm quitting. I've got to get my family back to legalism. (laughs) I didn't say it that way. And if you know the place, I was at the YMCA in Estes Park. What a beautiful place that is. And I drove out of the camp and right down to 34. And I was about to turn on to 34 and drive down the hill And I stopped dead. And in my mind, I could see a picture of where I had come from and how miserable I was and how much I had been praying for God to help me and to change me. But then I also saw this future that I was unsure about. And is it a mistake? And if I really go after this, am I going to lose the thing that I find comfort in? So I parked my car and I got out. And it was like March, if I remember right, March or April. So there were these beaver ponds right in the front, and it was, it was starting to get warm, but it was still cold up in the mountains, and the pond was frozen. So I picked up these big rocks, and I was throwing it, boom, trying to break the ice. And I walked around this pond, and I was just picking up these great big rocks, and I was telling God, how can this happen to me again? Where am I going to move to now? God, where are you in the midst of all of these things? How am I going to tell Chris we're going to have to go again? And the only thing that happened is my arm got tired. (laughs) And I stood there, man, I was breathing. I could see the smoke from just breathing. (laughs) And hot tears were coming down my cheeks. And the only sense that I had is that God was standing next to me, just standing there with me, not really saying anything. So I said, what am I going to do? And the Lord, I didn't hear it out loud. I heard it in my heart. This is what the Lord told me. John, you have two choices right now. So you can get in your car and you can drive down the hill. and You can quit. and You can go about trying to figure it out yourself. And I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. But you're going down if you go that way. Or you can humble yourself. You can get in your car and drive back up, put your stuff back, nobody even knows you're gone, walk back into the meeting and listen to what I have to say. I put my stuff back in my car, back in my room, back in the meeting, nobody knew I was gone, 
And I sat down and it began a five-year process, listen, of having to unlearn so that I could learn. We think our brain's like a computer hard drive where you can just write over the stuff. And that's not the way it works and here's why. Because Jesus said a little bit of the Pharisees' leaven will leaven the whole lump of God's truth. You have to get the leaven out so that you can have the truth in. Some of you are going to be confronted today with this message. And you've been praying, God, where's the life? You have a lifestyle. You're not messed up, at least in the ways that other people are. But you don't have life. You're going through the motions. Your heart's not there. It's cold. And you're judgmental. And you're critical. And you hear a message like this. And the two things that are happening right now is you feel, one, mad at me. But you also are torn because you're like, I think what he's saying is true, but I don't know if I can go there. That's legalism. And this is what God is trying to do this morning. So I'm going to take you to these two places real quick. And if you're taking the online notes and you want to fill in the blanks. um, By the way, there's only two points today. And I had a guy say to me, I thought it was like in Bible school they make you have three points with every message that you... (laughs) preach I think that's just the comfort level that pastors find in messages so if you're taking the notes here's the first one you have to learn how to live from God's smile and not for God's smile from God's smile not for God's smile John 1 12 Jesus said this to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become what? So one more time. He gave the right to become? If you're a parent, maybe one of the best things about being a parent is that once you become a parent, when you read the Bible, it gives you a perspective that you don't have if you don't have children. So for instance, when this says, to all who believed in him, trusted him, put their faith in him, He gave the right to become children of God. If you're a parent, you understand that even if they're messed up, they're still your children. You love them not because of what they do. You love them because of who they are. People ask me from time to time, Pastor, is there a line where you can mess up so bad that God finally leaves you or that you can walk away from God? So I, I guess technically speaking, maybe there is because Paul talks about people who have shipwrecked their faith, people who have walked away from the truth. I would just say to you this, no matter how messed up my children have been at different times and they have messed up, they're still my children. I never came to a place where I said, if you do this one more time, you are no longer a leech. You no longer have a right to my DNA. You no longer can be my child. No matter whether they're right or they're wrong, they are my children. And you know what? They didn't pick me. I picked them. And the Bible tells us that we love him because he first loved us. You didn't pick him. You weren't smart enough to pick him. You want to know the truth? You weren't even looking for him. He found you. He picked you. He opened your eyes. He loved you at your worst time. And just because you now know him and you've cleaned up your act, God is not any more proud of you, any more pleased with you, or any more in love with you. He loved you then. He loves you now. It's a love that will not change. It's a love that lasts forever. It is so radical that Jesus said this. 
even if you're unfaithful to me, I will remain faithful to you because I cannot deny myself. If you are his child, you are his child. So even if your life gets in funky places and places where it's messed up, you remain a child of God. When God looks at you, what does he see? Tell me what he sees. So we say child of God, but why do we say that? Do we say it because, well, when he looks at me, he sees Jesus. Theologically speaking, that's true. But even before Jesus, God loved you. He loves you. He chose you. He picked you. He designed you. The Bible says in your mother's womb, he knew you. He picked you. Now, to know it here is one thing, but to live it here is another. That kind of teaching doesn't make someone go, well, then no matter what I do, what I do God loves me. That, that's the worst way to think about this. The truth of this gospel message is when you realize that God loves you no matter what, it actually changed your heart because you don't want to hurt the one who loves you. So if you're out there dealing with all the things that are wrong with you and all the sin in your life and all the things that you're messed up with and you're like, if I can just take care of this, then God's going to be pleased with me. You will never be able to take care of it because you're doing it in your power. And God wants you to surrender and he wants to will and to work through you. So this message of grace is not some license for you to go sin. The truth is you can't get free of sin without God's grace. Grace is the proof that you're his favorite. Um, this book, Becoming a Face of Grace. Can you show that real quick? Becoming a Face of Grace. Boy, that was real quick. <laughs> Can you show that slow? <laughs> Can you show it at all? There. Becoming a Face of Grace, Navigating Lasting Relationships with God and Others by Ed Curry. Uh, Ed is a pastor and a theologian and a brilliant man. And he has a ghostwriter who goes to our church who helped write this book. And her name is Amy Pearson. And Amy, um, Amy helped Ed collaborate on this book and they gave me a copy of it and I try to read a lot of stuff about grace because if you're a recovering legalist you need to keep a constant flow of grace in your life to keep you from drifting back into it so listen real quickly um, I could only get my hands on 27 copies of this book now I can order more but it's going to take a couple of weeks to get them here so I could only get one case of these books to have for this weekend. And I told Amy, take six copies and stick them aside because I know the first service is going to buy everything that's there. So I have six copies of this list. And if you want a copy and we don't have one when you go out there, put your name on the list and we'll order for whoever would like one. This book is fantastic in helping you understand how to get grace from your head to your heart. So let me tell you a little bit about what this book says that ministered so much to me in the past month or so. Part of the book talks about the science of the brain with a man named Jim Wilder that we've had speak here. Jim teaches this. Um, it's true and it's right and I know it through experience but I never heard it put into a sentence. Listen to this. Whoever is joyful when they see you is the one that you will respond to and bond with. As a little baby before you can speak words and before you can form sentences and before you can think in terms of, you know, like this is left and this is right and this is up and this is down. Even a baby 
All they can do is breathe. But a baby is hardwired to be scanning the eyes of the adults around it, looking for whose eyes twinkle and light up when they see the baby. The baby is tuned into the smile of a parent. Think about it. You ever seen that little baby when they're in that first, when they begin to recognize and you smile at them and they smile back? God hardwired you to connect to that joy. Listen, it's why when an adolescent moves into the teenage years, it's not just their parents' approval any longer. Now they begin to look around for others their age who light up when they see them. And if they don't connect to people who are good character, they'll connect to people who are bad character as long as those people light up when they see them. And because this has to do with identity, a person who identifies with a group of people who are glad to see them will suddenly change the way they dress, talk, and act in order to fit in with a group of people who light up when they come around. The church should be a place, David, that when you walk into it, everyone should turn and smile at you because they're glad that you're here. And if you go someplace where all they do is tolerate you and not celebrate you, get to a place where you're celebrated. May you find in this church eyes that twinkle and smiles that light up because we're glad you're here. That's what you need to bond with. And that's how God looks at you. So that when he says to you, you are my children, you have to know he is smiling at you. His eyes are twinkling over your life. Now you can know it theologically, but do you feel it in your heart? Because the difference between you enjoying your relationship with God, not having to pray, but getting to pray. Not having to go to church, but you're around other people who are glad that you're here at church. The difference is life and death. So you're praying, God, I don't just want a lifestyle. I want life. And I'm trying to tell you, you've got to connect with this thing. And this is how God feels about you. Now, here's the problem with this. You're hardwired for it. And if a baby can't find it in an adult, then they automatically default to fear instead of joy. You connect to something. And a person who grows up with the approval of a smile. I'm coming down there. A person who grows up with the approval of a smile is far more than just like, oh, they smiled at me. A smile gives you the ability to move forward. You know you're not frozen. You're not in doubt. You're not in like, I, I don't know if I belong here. I don't know if I can go do that. When you have that approval, it lets you go forward in life. One of the most significant things that a parent can do for a child is just to let them know you're my child and I love you. And I approve of you. And if you think, what kind of philosophy is that? It's the philosophy of God the Father with Jesus the Son. When Jesus came up out of the Jordan at his baptism, the Bible says the heavens were open and the Father spoke these words. You are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. Every child longs to hear the words from their father or their mother. You are my child whom I love and I am pleased with you. I picked you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake. Hi. Jonna was in my youth group many years ago. She was there when I went from legalism to life. Oh, it changed me bad. You see her? We love you, Jonna. Jonna was my friend when I didn't have many friends at that time. 
It's another story. <laughs> we all long for this. It's everything. So you think, no, that's sentimental. It's just uh, it's emotions. God created your emotions. And certainly emotions can lie to you and mislead you, but in the right place, emotions can help you form and stick and become part of that thing. Every small group in our church, if it were within my power to make it where when you walked in, everybody turned, not because here's the lesson, but they turned and smiled at you because, oh man, we're so glad that you're here. The thing that would help you become a part of a group is not how much I can teach you theologically, but it's whether or not people there are glad to see me and want me there. If I could do that for every one of you. If I could find you. If I could tell you. If I could make you feel. What leaves a heart disconnected and so hard is to be in a place of doubt. You're trying so hard, man. You work so hard. So the best thing that a parent can do that can help a kid is to give them this approval when they're young because it makes it that much easier for them then to see God this way. And what a child will struggle with when they become an adult is that if they didn't bond to that love, then that fear thing is in their life. And now when they go before God, instead of thinking that he loves me and he approves of me, you doubt. So you perform. Because in the performance, you'll find the approval. And you get a lot done. God knows you get a lot done. You're the person that I would turn to to help me. You get things done. But are you enjoying that relationship with the Lord? Or is it just a burden? And the difference between the two? Life and death. Life and death. This book is good. And I don't get anything from this. I don't have any agreement. I'm not making any money. This is what we paid for the book. It was actually $19.99. I'm charging $20. If you want the penny, I'll give it back to you. <laughs> I didn't want those guys to have to figure out how to come up with the change. So I just went to 20 The two most powerful bonding emotions in the world are love and fear. Love is the preference, but fear is the fallback. There's no neutrality to it. What if you find a person then who is bonded to fear? And by the way, when I say fear, I don't mean like you're, I'm scared. But it's just, there's this fear that I don't fit in or that I don't measure up or that I'm not really going to get there or I'm a phony. Someone's going to figure it out. Are you okay? Are you with me? You want me to stop? You look like... yeah. Look. It's all good. Listen. What can you do for a person who's bound to fear? <laughs> 2 Timothy 1.7 Listen to this verse in light of what I'm teaching. God has not given us a spirit of and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Mature love always casts out immature fear. 
What you need is to be in a place that is so filled with love that it pushes out the fear. That's what I'm talking to you about in this situation. This is God's grace. His grace is that love. It's that approval. It's that smile. Mm. Let me give you the second one. I just want to make sure I get, I get to this and don't run out of time. You have to decide if you want to be Moses or you want to be Jesus. Now, I taught this before in a parenting message. And when you're raising children, you have to figure out when you're supposed to be Moses, who gives the Ten Commandments, and when you need to be Jesus, who is filled with grace and mercy. So when you have little ones, you need to teach the difference between right and wrong. You need to teach that this is going to harm you, this is going to kill you, this is going to lead to destruction. This is the way, this is the path, this is life. Walk in this way. I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. So I want you to choose life. You have to teach right and wrong. But when little children start to grow up, you don't want to always just teach the law. The law. You have to begin to teach grace and mercy to people because it's grace and mercy that holds a person in place. The law teaches right and wrong, but grace and mercy is what teaches us how to live life. So you have to decide in your relationship, are you going to be Moses or are you going to be Jesus? Let me give you two scriptures here. This is John 1.17. The law was given through who? But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You have to decide, are you going to be a person of the law or are you going to be a person of grace and truth? The law is summed up in this scripture right here. Do you need to know which one, guys? It's the Chronicle scripture. Yeah, thank you. You will have success, listen, if you are careful to observe the decrees and laws the Lord gave Moses for Israel. So the law teaches you will be blessed if you walk in this way and do these things. And there is truth to that, but that's called the Mosaic Covenant. And Jesus said, I bring another covenant, a better covenant because it's based on better promises. And that covenant is the Jesus Covenant. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it's the gift of God so the law teaches you are blessed when you are obedient but Jesus said I picked you so that even if you mess up I still bless you the law and grace differ this way that grace gives you a blessing even before the obedience and that is crazy because we think, Pastor, if you teach that, people are going to go out and just live any old way that they want to because God's going to bless them. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that God has chosen you even before you knew how to be obedient. And he loves you not because you became obedient. He loves you because you're his. And when you get that in your heart, man, it frees you up to live then the life that he really wants you to live. Are you following me right now? So there's two philosophies when it comes to our response to God. Righteousness through the law or righteousness through Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become, read these words, the righteousness of God in Christ. 
You become the righteousness of God in a relationship with Christ. So you have to choose. If you're Moses, you're righteous because you keep the law. But if you are Jesus, you're righteous because Jesus is righteous. Do you understand the difference between the two philosophies? So a person says, but I'm all about Jesus. Do you keep the law then to be pleasing to God? Or are you pleasing to God because you're in Christ? When I write a message, usually I have some concluding point that I'm going to pray on. Here's the only thing that I felt like the Holy Spirit gave me this week. I was reading Thessalonians. I don't know how many times I've read Thessalonians. Thousands. I've preached from it. I use it in funerals. I've memorized portions of Thessalonians. For some reason, this week, I read this, and I never saw it before. It's 1 Thessalonians 1.3. Look at these three things. We remember before our God and Father, number one, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Uh, remember when Paul taught in Corinthians, faith, hope, and love? And he said that the greatest of these is love is always, it triumphs everything. Here's what I saw in this that I never saw before. When our work is produced because we're trying to earn God's favor rather than produced because we have God's favor. It's not a faith. When our labor is prompted by his love rather than we're trying to just get it all done so that God will be happy, it's the wrong labor. And when your endurance is based on you trying harder rather than on the hope you have in Jesus, it's how you can do the same thing. You can have two people doing the exact same thing, but one comes from the law and works and one comes from grace and love. And they may be the same people at the same time, but they are having two different experiences. One is experiencing life, and one has a lifestyle. Man, I wish that I had a few more weeks to teach on grace and mercy. And maybe I will in this coming year. Maybe that's exactly what we'll do and spend some more time teaching on this. I'm going to go back and just circle back to what I said and prayed in the very beginning. The problem with this message is simply this. We're going to come to the end of it right now. And there is not one thing I can do for you to help you get this in your life. The Holy Spirit has to take it from here to here. And if your struggle is, Pastor, it just, it just can't be like that. It just, there, has to be, there has to be something that we do or that we pray or that we say or that we work hard for. And then all of these blessings come our way and then this approval is ours. I'm telling you, as long as you think that way, you're actually going to be denied what God has for you. It comes down to not what you can do, but just who you are. God loves you, picked you, and his favor is upon you. And out of that should come your work. Out of that comes your labor. Out of that comes your endurance. And if it comes from anything else, then you're off track. And I don't even know when I say that if you hear that, because I think to myself, unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, it's just like that Charlie Brown. Womp, 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 womp. And I never want you to hear him womp, womp, womp. I'd rather not talk than have you hear that. So Holy Spirit, would you just put your hand back on your heart again, guys? And if you're just like, Pastor, I don't want to do it, I, it's okay. But I just think there's, 
something to the heart. The Bible says, guard your heart above all things because from your heart comes your story. Your life story will come from your heart. So I'm asking the Father right now that He would open your heart. I'm asking that Jesus would pour His love into your heart in a way that you've never experienced before. I'm asking that the Holy Spirit would take it from your mind and move it to your heart so that you experience what I'm talking about as true and right. That you don't try to relay this message from your memory, but you relay it from your experience. Some things aren't to be known because of a definition. They're to be known by experience. And you need to know this mercy and this grace and this love by experience right now. So I pray that anything that's in the way of you knowing this great love, that the Lord would remove it. That any lie, any rejection, any hurt, any scheme of the enemy, any failure, any betrayal, anything that stopped you from experiencing the real love of the Father, the grace of Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would right now be removed out of the way and that what I'm saying will be so real to you. I'm praying that if you and I never even see each other again in life, this truth will guide you. That God chose you. He picked you. He loves you. And that He smiles over you. Just like Jesus was said, this is my child whom I love and with them I am well pleased. I pray that before you build any more in your theological house and your physical life, that you get this in the foundation, that you are his child whom he loves and he is pleased with you. But pastor, there's so much wrong with me. And he loves you. But pastor, I struggle so much. And he loves you. Pastor, if you just knew how broken. It doesn't matter what I know. God knows. And he loves you. Pastor, I'm so far away. And God calls you close today. Pastor, I'm tired of trying. God knows, and that's why he designed this message to tell you it's not about how hard you try. It's about what he's done for you. Friend, I invite you into this relationship and this understanding of who God is and that you're his child. And I know the fear that you can feel like, if I abandon myself to that, then I could end up living this crazy life far away from God. No, if you abandon yourself to this love, it drives out fear and draws you to the Father. You are a child of God whom He loves and is pleased with. And He calls you to Himself. And the only way to really get free of all the stuff is to come into that relationship first. 
and then God can will and work in your life. Man, I pray this over every person in this room. And even if right now you don't get it, may the Lord make it clear and easy for you to understand. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.